At the end, it might have been rock and roll and blue jeans that were more influential than tanks and artillery. That's right, but it's best to have both. It is the week of August 17th, and welcome to episode 38 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, Senior Fellow at the National Security Institute. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive with Dr. Joseph Nye. Dr. Nye is a global leader on the study of international relations. He co-founded the international relations theory of neoliberalism and coined the phrase soft power. He has also served in multiple presidential administrations, and on a variety of policy advisory boards. Dr. Nye, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. It's nice to be with you. It really is a huge honor for us to have you on here. We really do appreciate it. Let me ask you this first question. Why did you write this book? Well, I've always been intrigued by the question of whether moral issues matter. The conventional wisdom about international relations and foreign policy is that it's all about national interests. Interests bake the cake, and then politicians sprinkle a little morality on top, like icing, to make it look pretty. I didn't think that's true from my own experience in government or my readings of history. So I thought it'd be interesting to look at each of the 14 presidents that we've had since 1945 and ask did their moral views make a difference? And I think what I've shown in several of the cases is absolutely. And that if you take that cynical view of history, you're going to get history wrong. So I read the book. It's a terrific book. I highly recommend it to our listeners. And I have to say, I was thrilled with the topic because it is the conventional wisdom that morals don't necessarily matter in foreign policy. It's the results that matter. And presidents many times have been judged on that. And you have this amazing guide to evaluating presidents and their decision-making. You have seven big topics that you evaluate each of our post-World War II presidents on. Can you talk a little bit about the methodology and how you decided on that and what you think its utility is at the end of the day? Well, the typical American approach to judging morality in foreign policy is based on our good intentions. Americans like to think of themselves as moral, American exceptionalism. So if we intend well, and we always think we intend well, then we say it must be a moral foreign policy. My view is that that's the cop-out. You know, you can have terrible immoral consequences, even if your intentions are good. You know, the proverbial saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So, for example, on the invasion of Iraq, Ari Fleischer, George W. Bush's press secretary, said you had to admire Bush's moral clarity with his freedom agenda. And my reaction to that is, wait a minute, what about the mess that he made and the lives that were lost, and the fact that even if it were trying to defeat al-Qaeda, it actually stimulated al-Qaeda in Iraq, which morphed into ISIS, the Islamic State. That was a terrible immoral consequence. So the fact that Bush had good intentions, let's grant him good intentions, but didn't have adequate means. He discarded various warnings from the State Department and intelligence community that say, you can't do this very effectively and then produce this awful mess, that is what I call three-dimensional morality. You judge the intentions and the means and the consequences. And that's what this little scorecard is all about. It doesn't answer all the questions, but it gives you something which is more substantial than the, oh, I intended well. 
or it turned out okay. That's the other cop-out. If it turned out okay, it doesn't matter what I did. No, both of those are cop-outs. You got to judge in all three dimensions. So let me ask you about the scorecard. It seems like it's a terrifically useful tool. And I took the liberty of attaching grades to each of your words. You had good, kind of medium, and poor, and I gave an A, B, C, D, F equivalent and then came up with grade point averages. Jimmy <laughs> Carter gets a higher GPA than Ronald Reagan does. And I have to say, it seemed a little counterintuitive to me. Can you talk about how you use your model to analyze those two presidents who seem to be kind of differentiated for a lot of Americans in their minds on foreign policy? Well, there are a couple of things there. One is a moral foreign policy. It's not exactly the same as an effective foreign policy. And so you could have a different view, for example, of Reagan, including effectiveness, or Nixon, including effectiveness, rather than just morality. So I I was looking particularly at how do we judge the moral qualities of foreign policy. And Reagan actually came out higher overall than I had expected. I think the reason is that in addition to his grand speeches, he was actually a very practical man in negotiating with Gorbachev. This brought him back to that experience he'd had had as the head of the Screen Actors Guild. I mean, he knew how to state a great principle, but then how to make compromises to get real moral results. I thought I gave Reagan a pretty good record. Carter is often thought about as ineffective, but in fact, he is much more effective than people realize. If you look at getting rid of the Panama Canal, which could otherwise have been the source of anti-American guerrilla movements throughout the Americas, if you look at the David uh, process in which he poured enormous energies in reconciling Egypt and Israel. If you look at his non-proliferation policy in which he toughened down and reversed uh, some of the spread of sensitive nuclear equipment that was going on, there are a lot of things Carter did that were actually quite effective. But the one that probably people remember most in terms of morality was his elevation of human rights, which had been mentioned in American foreign policy before. But Carter actually gave it a priority and made it a major factor. I think that's why his score went up a little bit higher than might be expected. You also gave a fairly high grade to Gerald Ford who, of course, was only president for a couple of years and in a time, of course, all time in American history since World War II is interesting and consequential, but perhaps not the most consequential couple of years. How did you factor in the relevance of the decision-making presidents were confronted with during their terms? Again, and I mentioned in the conclusion that Ford and Carter both were short-term presidents, not two-term presidents, and they I'm not judging them on total effectiveness, but on morality. But on morality, Ford had the job of coming after Nixon and Watergate and Nixon's resignation to avoid impeachment. And he also had the problems of how do you deal with the extrication from Vietnam, which in a deeply divisive issue in the United States. And Ford handled those pretty well. He represented in his personal character integrity and honesty, which Richard Nixon had not. And he also was a man who tried to be straightforward and honest. In that sense, both he and Carter were similar. I think that people felt reassured after the sort of the nightmare of Vietnam and Watergate by Ford's educational role at home, as well as his stewardship abroad. He did 
certain things in foreign policy, continuing the detente, developing the Organization for European Cooperation and Security, the predecessor to it, the so-called Helsinki process. He was effective in those things, but I think mostly it was the educational role that he played in the aftermath of what had been something of a national nightmare. You make the point near the end of the book, and you're echoing Dr. Henry Kissinger, of course, that legitimacy depends on values, which certainly seems evident and is a fundamental thesis of your work. But how much should we calibrate our understanding of legitimacy with the other attribute of power? In other words, if the U.S. were a terrifically moral nation, but not powerful enough in the world to make a difference in foreign relations, how do we weigh legitimacy then? Are we taking too narrow of a view of legitimacy in this case, perhaps? Well, I distinguish between what I call hard power and soft power. If power is the ability to affect others to get what you want, you can do it through coercion or payment, which are both forms of hard power, or you can do it through attraction to get others to want what you want. And if you can have hard power reinforced by soft power, then you have legitimacy for your policies. It doesn't mean that soft power is sufficient. Well, soft power is not going to, for example, get Kim Jong-un to give up his nuclear weapons. Hard power is essential for deterrence on the Korean Peninsula. So it's not that one is good and the other is bad, but it is true that if people admire you, if they believe that your policies are legitimate, then you can essentially have a force multiplier for your hard power. So you need the hard power. There's no question about it. But if in addition to that, you have soft power, which can grow out of your moral standing or your moral actions, you're going to have a stronger position overall. I often give the example of the end of the Cold War. The Berlin Wall came down not under a barrage of artillery, but under hammers and bulldozers wielded by people whose minds had been changed by Western ideas. So in that sense, the combination of hard power of deterrence, which we needed in the Cold War, plus the soft power of our ideas, essentially was crucial to the outcome being a peaceful succession. At the end, it might have been rock and roll and blue jeans that were more influential than tanks and artillery. That's right. But it's best to have both. (laughs) All right. Let me ask you one other question. And to the extent, if I may presume to have a beef with the book, it would be that in your scorecard and in the descriptions of each president's work, there's not a category or a special analysis related to the way that those presidents worked with Congress. In the Constitution, there's a number of authorities that are given to the Hill, particularly to the Senate, in terms of foreign policy. As a former Hill person, perhaps I'm congenitally disposed to look for this, I didn't see like an evaluation of the way the presidents handled their constitutional responsibilities vis-a-vis the first branch of government, which is Congress. How much do you think that should be a factor in the way we evaluate morality for the president's behavior? around the globe. Oh, I think it's very important. And and I I think you're right that you could, or I could have singled it out. I blurred it into a larger category of respect for institutions. And by that, I meant both domestic and uh, international institutions, but it could easily have been broken out as a separate factor. It's interesting in that dimension that somebody like Woodrow Wilson, who was before the period of my book, but basically his inability to work the Senate to get the Treaty of Versailles 
past and thereby have an American membership in the League of Nations was a great failing. People give Wilson credit for trying to develop an international institution in the League of Nations, but his failure to work with the Senate, with Henry Cabot Lodge, and get this treaty passed, which he could have done, meant that his institutional failure at home undercut his institutional success abroad. So I think you're absolutely right, and perhaps I shouldn't have blurred the two into one category of institutions, because as that example I just gave you showed, they actually can work in different directions. Let me ask you about current events, if that's okay, and kind of how you think this model might apply to them. And I'm thinking of the surprise announcement from a few days ago that the United Arab Emirates and Israel, it looks like they're going to establish diplomatic relations. And that would seem to be a very positive thing for the Middle East. The conventional wisdom for the way the U.S. should approach the Middle East has been to think about the concerns of the Palestinians and a two-state solution. And it didn't necessarily anticipate that a president, President Trump, who has invested so much directly in the relationship with Israel rather than the peace process, would be able to produce a result like this. How much do you think we should evaluate the current structure of power in the Middle East and the decisions that have been made in a moral sense? Is it possible that this result, and it seems to be a good one and could be the leading indicator of other positive steps in the region, hopefully, is there a way to see that in a positive moral light now that we see the results. Yes, I was pleased by the UAE's recognition. I give him credit for it. On the other hand, we'll have to see whether the ultimate consequences work. In other words, will this really lead to a breakthrough in the Middle East and in the peace process? We don't know. It's too early. So step one, yes, give credit where credit's due, but uh, we're many steps from the final answer. I presume that since you wrote this book, it's emerged that Joe Biden is going to be the Democrats nominee for president, which should be formalized here this week. He's got a long track record in foreign policy. He was the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee for a long time. He was vice president for eight years. He's been in public life for decades and has said a lot of things. Do you have any preview for us of what a Biden Biden presidency could look like under these principles you talk about in the book? I have known Biden for some time when I worked in government and uh, testified before him when he was in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and so forth. He's a man of integrity. He's not always right, but he's a man of personal integrity. And if you compare that to President Trump, who, if the Washington Post is correct, has told something like 25,000 lies and almost four years in office. Uh, When you tell that many lies, you debase the currency. Sure, Biden has transgressed and told lies, haven't we all? I mean, all politicians lie, all humans lie. But the amount of lying and the type of lie is very different from the incumbent, from anything that Joe Biden has ever done. So in that sense, I think his integrity will make a difference. In terms of substance of policy, he has already declared that he is going to pay more attention to alliances and to international institutions. Concretely, what that would mean, as he has said, he will rejoin the Paris Climate Accords on uh, day one. He will not go through with the full withdrawal from the World Health Organization. And as I try to argue in the last chapter of my book, that two of the great issues for the next decade are going to be how we deal with what I call ecological globalization, such as pandemics and climate change, which obey the laws of physics and biology, not politics. And Trump has failed on both of those. And Biden, I think, has already indicated that these will be high priorities for him. So I think both that what I said earlier about Biden's character and also about what 
hints he's given us of his uh, substantive change of directions uh, in terms of alliances and, and institutions and dealing with these new types of transnational issues, I think you're going to see a healthy change in American foreign policy. Can we talk about multilateralism a little bit? And you do reference Woodrow Wilson extensively in the book as kind of a baseline for internationalist sense of a moral approach. Can there be a time when an objective viewpoint of multilateral institutions or organizations reveals that they are not as effective for promoting U.S. values and interests as they should be? And there does come a time when it is not necessarily the best approach to embrace multilateralism, and that on occasion, a more unilateralist approach or a more of a coalition of the willing or some other similar phrase might be appropriate. Is it possible that that is the more moral course on occasion. No, absolutely. There was in the 1970s this demand for a new international economic order in the United Nations, which would have been uh, devastating in terms of the effect on the global economy. And we resisted that and properly refused to pay for it or to join in with it. So there are many instances where basically you don't go along just because the majority of states has voted in a given direction. On the other hand, you can find other situations where, take the World Health organization, which Trump announced that we're withdrawing from, and blame the World Health Organization. Most of my friends who are experts in epidemiology and pandemics tell me that actually the World Health Organization, A, doesn't have enough power, and if the Chinese had too much influence, it was because the other countries were not doing enough, but that at the working level of scientist to scientist and working groups, Actually, the WHO was extraordinarily important and effective. One epidemiologist told me that there's a weekly uh, networking conference at the level of the scientists, which is run through the WHO, which is extremely important. So the last thing you want to do is pull out of the WHO, but you can try to find ways to reform it and to improve it. In addition to that, uh, we shouldn't look at any one form of multilateralism as the only form. For example, in the area of international health and vaccines, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and others have established Gavi, which is the Vaccine Alliance, and SEPI, which is also aimed at trying to make sure that poor countries get, uh, get access to vaccines. These are not WHO programs. They're non-governmental programs that supplement the WHO. So the point is not that somebody signs a treaty or a convention and therefore you have to obey everything that's passed in the UN General Assembly or whatever. It's that when you're trying to deal with some of these issues, you've got to find ways to work with others. Sometimes it's a big formal organization. Sometimes it's an ad hoc grouping or a network or a club. Uh, and I, But th th there's a big difference between that approach that I just described and unilateralism. We'll just go it alone which doesn't work. I mean, if you talk about these new issues, uh, take climate change, uh, we can't solve that alone. And uh, we have to learn to distinguish uh, power over others, which is the traditional way of thinking of it, power with others. We can't solve climate change or pandemics 
unless we work with others. It doesn't mean you have to do it through the UN, but it does mean you're going to have to find ways to work with others in a variety of forms. It seems like the president's decision to start the pullout process with WHO was a way for him to attack China without actually attacking China. And he thought it was a no-cost or a low-cost move to show his displeasure with China and give him the ability to campaign against China and portray Joe Biden as soft on China. But it comes at the expense of the legitimacy of this organization that's going to be critical to solving the pandemic and preventing the next one. I think that's right. I mean, if you look at Trump's record on the COVID pandemic, he starts with denial and then he turns to blame shifting and then he turns to propaganda. And all of these are devices for his political purposes. They're not suited to solving the real underlying problem that has killed more Americans than we've lost in all our wars since 1945. What's your assessment of the challenge for the U.S. from China in the next generation? Is this something that's going to turn into an existential threat for our way of life? Is it something that can be managed? Or is it perhaps getting a little overblown right now and there's China will settle into a natural role in its sphere of the globe that won't necessarily impinge on our interests. What's your kind of long-term view? Well, China is a rising power, and it can threaten a number of concrete American interests. And it also has developed a new form of hybrid state capitalism. It's a they call market Leninism. It's a communist party without communism. These are all challenges to us, and we're going to have to respond to them. So we're going to have to take issue with companies like Huawei and make sure they don't build our next generation of telecommunications. When China tries to pour sand on rocks and atolls in the South China Sea and coal in the islands, we have to sail naval patrols through the air to defend freedom of navigation. So there are going to be a number of areas where there'll be a competition and a rivalry. But we don't want to demonize China and we don't want to exaggerate their strength. China has a number of problems. Its labor force is peak, whereas ours has not. It has an economic model that works so well for it, and picking the low-hanging fruit is running out of some steam. Its growth rates are going to be much lower than in the past. And if you look at the fact that we have allies, a lot of countries in Asia want us there, not because they want a war with China, but because they want us to balance China. So India, Japan, Vietnam, and others uh, welcome our presence. So we have some pretty hard cards to play in our competition with China, as long as we don't discard them as long as we play them well. My view is that the U.S. will stay ahead of China and can manage this relationship. I call it not a Cold War, but a uh, cooperative rivalry. And if we pay attention to both halves of that phrase, cooperation in some areas, take climate change, rivalry in other areas, South China Sea, um, we can manage it. I remember talking with Lee Kuan Yew, the former Prime Minister of Singapore, and I asked him once if he thought China would surpass the U.S. as the world's leading power. He said, no, he didn't think so, because while uh, the United States didn't have as many people as China, and China could draw on the talents of 1.3 billion people, the United States could draw on the talents of the whole world and could recombine them with a diversity and creativity that was never possible with ethnic Han nationalism. This is coming from Lee Kuan Yew, who was ethnic Han. I think he's right. 
I think we can actually manage this relationship with China unless we become too hysterical. If we turn it into a Cold War, and if we wind up with intense hostility in all dimensions and no cooperation at all, then miscalculation could occur. In 1914, nobody wanted World War I. It was supposed to be the Third Balkan War. Instead, after four years, it led to the collapse of uh, four governments and dismemberments of their states. So we got to avoid miscalculations of that sort. But uh, I think this is a manageable relationship. Second to last question. It would seem like smart power or soft power, as you coined, is going to be more important with the rivalry with China than ever before. And our ability to attract allies and friends is going to be at a premium. It's going to be less about hard power and more about how we can demonstrate our way is the better way. Do you think we're in a position right now to roll out a soft power framework that is up to the task? Well, under the Trump administration, according to international polls taken by Pew and Gallup and so forth, our soft power or our attractiveness has declined quite considerably. But I think we can recover that if we have a change in the presidency. And I think that in the long run, we're much better placed than China on soft power. China talks a lot about soft power, invests billions of dollars to promote it. But when you look at what the polling evidence shows, China's not that attractive to that many countries. You don't find people marching through the streets in favor of Xi Jinping thought Mao actually was more effective than Xi on that dimension. Whereas the American, when we stand for human rights and stand for uh, broader values, we get a considerable degree of soft power. And the international polling shows it. Has any of the criticism of your book, and I presume there hasn't been a lot of it, but has any of the criticism you felt struck a chord, or is there anything that you want to answer from your critics? Well, I think some critics say that uh, that I was too tough on Trump, others that I wasn't tough enough on Trump. So I felt they have balanced each other out. I was trying to be fair-minded, but he is the most amoral president we've had uh, in the 14th since 45. Uh, On the general proposition that morals do matter, I, I, I haven't found a critic yet who refutes that. Dr. Nye, thank you very much for joining us today. I really enjoyed the book. And I'll tell you, my wife, who really doesn't read foreign policy stuff, picked it up. She loved it, too. So you've got two Munsons who are big fans, for what it's worth. Thanks a lot for being with us today. It's a real honor for us. The pleasure is mine. Nice to be with you. Enjoyed the chat. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Andy Young for research assistance, and of course, our terrific producer and director Grant Haver for all of his work. Please join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.